Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. Now, I have many heroes in the regenerative economy, and my guest today certainly ranks up at the top. Wayne Dorben and his online educational platform, the Economics Action Team, or EAT for short, has been putting out amazing webinar series with some of the best educators and practitioners out there for years now. And Wayne himself is a great example of a successful serial entrepreneur of regenerative enterprises. Now, above all, though, I reached out to Wayne to get his expert opinion on aquaponics and aquaculture systems. In this interview, Wayne uses examples from his own commercial aquaponics system centered around a two-acre pond on his land in Colorado to explain the major components and concepts behind the success of his systems. We start by defining the differences between hydroponics and aquaponics and work through the essential components of the cycles within the system. We talk about nutrient cycling, troubleshooting, and how to observe a tough-to-diagnose underwater system before killing all of your fish by accident. This is a really in-depth look at aquaponic systems, so grab your notebook and I'll turn things over to Wayne. Hey Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing in Colorado, I assume? I am in Colorado. It's great being here with you, Oliver. It's a beautiful day here, sitting looking out my window at one of the things we do on the ranch, which is a whole bunch of people having some fun out in our ponds and, and working their dogs. So, Oh, fantastic. Looking at their vans parked out. Yeah, well, the nice thing is you guys are in the middle of your summer and the seasons are quite different here. We're in the middle of our rainy season, but we're fortunate enough to have a bit of nice weather and I've got a great view of the lake too. So we're in good situations. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is our... Um, you know, we, we get a little hot in June and July, and then it starts to cool off. So I think the high today is in the mid-80s, and, and lows are in the 50s, maybe even going to start to get down into the 40s soon. So it could be warm during the day, and yet it cools off real nicely at night. We're that's, starting to see fall grasses begin to grow. That's gorgeous. Yeah, I remember that from the many seasons that I worked in the conservation corps and building trails in the national parks in the wilderness, uh, wilderness areas in Colorado. That was one of my favorite parts is those chilly nights that kind of are invigorating. But hey, look, Wayne, I've got a ton of questions that I've loved to ask you because I've been following your educational platforms and your webinar series for quite some time. So what do you say we just jump in? Let's do it. 
All right. So could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your personal background? I know you've had experience in a ton of different regenerative enterprises. Um, and I, you know, we'll get to each one of those individually as we go. But give us an idea about how you got started. Yeah, it goes way back for me. Um, my mother says that I was, you know, playing with living things and particularly living things in water from way before I can remember. And when I do have my earliest memories, they are from where I was growing up, which is in the high desert north of Los Angeles, in an area that was very um, rural. Uh, we had desert that was around us and we had farmland. This particular area became um, the alfalfa capital of, of California. Some people said the United States after um, World War II. Um, and I was growing up there, you know, 10, 15 years later. Um, so I would love to be out and hanging out with the, uh, the coyotes and the snakes and the cactuses and pretty rugged environment. And at that time, I think my parents would have said they would have been put in child custody for today, you know, support for not paying attention because from five years old, we, we just headed outside in the afternoons and came back in at dark um, and just wandered around sometimes, either on foot or on our bikes. So that's where it started. Um, my, my father was an aerospace engineer and a pilot, and I grew up in a really cool place where I could be around very high energy and, and, and success level adults. And so I had, I had a guy named Chuck Yeager that lived down the street who encouraged me to, you know, be a, a, a cool young man. And, and uh, Chuck was a good friend of my dad's and the astronaut Neil Armstrong lived right behind me. And I got mentored by him a little bit. Uh, and they all encouraged me to really follow my interest in in the outdoors and, and, in, and in regenerative sorts of things. And then lastly, I'll tie it into the agriculture. That agriculture that was occurring in this place I lived was not regenerative and not restorative. And matter of fact, very minimally sustainable. And my friends whose fathers were alfalfa farmers, their fathers all said, guess what? I don't even think what we're doing is going to be around for, you know, our kids, which were my friends, because they were using huge amounts of water for irrigation. They were highly making the soils saline. They were destroying the soils and they knew it and they realized it. And we're talking about millions of acres in this valley um, where alfalfa was grown. So I was able to see the worst of farming and ranching done by people who weren't farmers and ranchers before they came back from World War II. And they were only doing it because they were given the land. They were subsidized to produce the alfalfa. And it was a great way to make a living for them. And they knew it was going to only be for a short period of time. And if you look at a Google Earth today of that area I grew up in, you'll only see you know, a really random little amount of, of, of irrigated land for, for center pivot irrigation systems. And all those millions of acres have gone back to horribly degraded desert. So it was a pretty negative. And I, that, that became the genesis of my interest. What sort of effect did that have on you seeing the stark contrast between your fascination with the living world and those positive role models that you had, but living in an area where the landscape and the ecology was being so obviously destroyed for short-term gain? Well, it, it was what prompted me to then really focus my education on seeing how I might be able to have some kind of an impact on, on reversing that. And when I was a, a junior in high school, uh, my family moved from the desert to the beach. My dad got transferred to what's called the Space Division, and he started to work on the moon program and the Apollo program. And we moved from, from again, the desert to where I could, I could hitchhike about a mile and a half to the Pacific Ocean. And 
I had gone to the beach quite a bit with my parents when I was younger, um, and I loved that, that also. But I fell in love with the coastline, surfing, um, snorkeling, eventually scuba diving, and my education, which in the high school at that point, as I moved into college, um, began to, to really focus on aquatic issues and aquatic ecology. And I got a lot of education, ended up with a bachelor's, a master's, a double major, and my master's and bachelor's in chemistry and biology, and then a PhD in aquatic ecology. And I was also fortunate, again, to continue that mentorship. And most importantly, I was mentored by a fellow named Carl Hubbs. Carl Hubbs is, is a well-known, now deceased, but aquatic ecologist, marine, uh, the ocean related, and he's the founder of SeaWorld. And there's a whole story there that I would talk, tell in a different mode, but I was actually there the day that, that he got Shamu in and we rode on his back. I was there an intern and Carl went off to lunch and he told us not to get in this tank with this killer whale. And all of us that were interns, we immediately got in the tank. And by the time he came back <laughs> from lunch, Shamu was throwing us up in the air and we were having a great time um, taking, you know, having fun. But Carl was a great mentor. His whole goal was to reverse some of the horrible atrocities associated with with whaling and um, and tuna fisheries and dolphins who that were maimed and injured. So he took in a lot of rescue mammals. And then he had no idea about an amusement park. And it was that day watching us with Shamu with a bunch of bankers that he was with. And I had no idea, but, but SeaWorld was about ready to go in the toilet financially that they convinced him that he should do an amusement type of a park along with the research work that he was doing. That was the genesis of what everybody knows as SeaWorld today. And so I got to see that. And then I'm also sort of a serial entrepreneur. And Dr. Hubbs helped get me into Scripps Institute of Oceanography for a PhD program. And, and so it, it, a lot of what I learned was through mentors. And I really highly recommend that all of you listening to this, make sure you've got some mentors in your life. I really agree with that advice. Mentors have been a huge propellant in, in my life as well. Now, that's a perfect transition. Could you start to tell us a little bit about how you transferred that educational base into the entrepreneurial world and turn some of these into viable business models? Yeah, well, the first thing I did was when I was living out there in the desert um, and I was an only child, I was given one of my chores was to mow our lawn and that was, you know, probably 10 years old. Well, by the time I was 12, I was mowing a whole bunch of neighbors' lawns also. But I realized real quickly, wait a minute, I'm really good at selling this to little young you know, ladies who like my cute 12-year-old nature. And I got friends who have brothers who are 16 that are all looking for work and they have lawnmowers. Why don't I just start selling and I'll, I'll have these 16-year-olds do all the mowing? So I had this little lawn mowing business when I was 12 that I learned later because I didn't get any of the money. The money went to my dad and mom and they put it in a checking account that I made more money that summer when I was 12 years old having these 16 year olds mow lawns than what my dad made as a pilot um, in, in the working for a private company doing test piloting. Oh, my goodness. Was pretty amazing to me when I learned that later. That was the start entrepreneurially. And when I got into college, I was doing consulting for a variety of different companies. I had, again, professors who saw that I had entrepreneurial interests. And so I would do aquatic ecology consulting. And when I got into grad school, um, my, my professors there made a good portion of their income doing consulting. And again, they used graduate students as what we called slave labor for for their consulting work. And I saw real quickly, I didn't need them. I could do it directly and I didn't need to be a slave. So I started doing my own consulting as a grad student for a variety of these different clients that my professors have. 
And I had always was motivated that by, by the time I finished my education, that I would go out and become a college professor and I would do research and I would, um, because they had to do consulting to make an income, I'd do the same thing. So when I finished grad school and got a professorship position, I took with me a consulting group of clients that I already had and I continued to make income from them. Well, pretty quickly I saw there was way more work than I could do myself. So I gathered, much like I had done when I was 12 years old, I started gathering grad students from different universities that were looking for work to do. I'd go out and sell the work and they'd do it. And we formed a company. And that company became um, a very large company about 10 years later. And I had to make the decision to move away from either the professorship or from the consulting. And I actually decided um, that I would become full time in the consulting business and doing environmental and ecological consulting and helping make the planet better. So um, that was the genesis of that. That was how I started doing that. Fantastic. Now let's focus down on this enterprise that you're perhaps best known for, and that's aquaculture. Could you start by telling us first the difference between what hydroponics and aquaponics is? Because this is a sticking point I've heard from a lot of people. Yeah, well, my definition at least, and I don't think it's too different than many others, would be that anything that you grow that is not normally grown in water, but that you're growing in water, which would be usually considered terrestrial plants, edible plants normally. Um, so lettuce, tomatoes, you know, any kinds of, of fruiting plants or, or leafy plants that would normally have their roots based in soils. If instead they're, they're growing in a water media, and they could still have their roots based in something solid, but it's the water that's really providing all their nutritional value. That's hydroponics. And if you combine that hydroponic process with the generation of the nutrients that those plants need occurring from animals, uh, fish or uh, some other kind of animal, that's aquaponics. So an aquaponics system is hydroponics where the nutrients, at least some of them, are being produced by animals um, through their excrement, through their poop and their pee. And with just plain hydroponics, you're purchasing... It's obviously a little more, a little more complex than that, but... But that's sure, but those are definitions we can work with. And so in that case, with hydroponics, you're usually purchasing some sort of fertilizer medium in order to put into the water? Standard hydroponics, that would be the case. Yes, that's correct. So now within that, can you tell us about some of the systems that you've designed and managed and the types of foods and cycles with different organisms that you found to be really beneficial in these systems? I found pretty early on that was what was in concert with my overall, I, you know, I didn't know this was even a term, but restorative ecological mentality was that most aquaculture, so now I'm using, I'm not using ponics at all, and aquaculture is growing things in water, right? Anything really. So that's like agriculture is broadly growing things to eat. Aquaculture is growing things in water to either consume or to produce into something that humans are going to use. That if aquaculture was done inappropriately, it was completely out of balance with natural systems. And there are lots of kinds of aquaculture that fit that definition. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be involved in that at all. And instead, I wanted to use ecologically beneficial methods to create aquaculture systems that could provide food. Well, one of those was what people call aquaponics because that's what natural ponds and aquatic systems do. A natural system is based on the balance between animals, plants, microbes, all the different six different groups of organisms that there are at a large level. So 
I got very intrigued and I started to study people, people like Sepp Holzer over in Austria, uh, people like Jonathan Todd, who was a mentor, uh, formed what was called the New Alchemists back in the 1970s. Um, Bob Rodale, who was the founder of Rodale Press and Mother Earth News, and he partnered with John Todd to do aquaculture in something that simulated natural systems. And that involved some kind of, of a plant-animal-microbe interaction. And the real key was then, could you get higher densities? Could you produce what you were going to harvest at something more dense than a natural system might do and yet still keep it in balance. So I'll give you a very specific example. I have about a two acre pond here on my property in Northern Colorado that if it was, by the way, those are guinea fowls that you, you might be hearing in the background and I can't mute them, but that's, all right. that's good ambiance. What, what I do, what I do. <laughs> um, yeah. Those guinea fowls kill rattlesnakes and we have rattlesnakes here. And since we've had them and they're in their third year now, they actually, and they kill them and they annoy them. Rattlesnakes don't like sound and they'll run away from sound. So the guinea fowl will make noise and the rattlesnakes move somewhere else and they'll actually kill them. But Fantastic anyway, back to deterrent. aquaculture. Uh, yeah. Um, back to this pond. This pond would, would probably naturally produce maybe... 1,500 to 2,000 adult bass, smallmouth bass. Well, I've got over 11,000 in this pond, and it's very healthy, and it's been doing it, this kind of production for about six years now. And, um, and the reason I can increase that density is that I manage the inputs into the pond. By the way, the pond's used for swimming. It's very clear. This pond's used for a lot of other purpose other than just producing fish. Although the primary purpose for the pond is fish production. So by managing the rest of the ecosystem, the land, really more than the water, I'm able to create natural conditions that will produce higher densities of fish that can then be harvested for human consumption. By the way, we do no outside inputs into this pond. I'm not feeding these fish. I have 11,000 when it would normally produce 1,500 to 2,000, and I'm not putting feed into it. The feed are the natural organisms that are there, crayfish, insects, both aquatic insects and those that happen to land on the water, uh, small fish, what we call bait fish or, or um, minnows and such is sometimes what they're called that these bigger fish, the bass, will eat. These bass are carnivores, so they, they, eat, they eat mostly other um, animals of some kind. So that's, I mean, I didn't learn that overnight. That came from uh, being with people like Carl Hubbs all the way back at the SeaWorld time frame. And I had the pleasure of being around other graduate students who became aquaculturists through their whole lives and being around them and, and absorbing from them. And then, you know, spending a lot of time around natural systems myself that I just experimented with. And I made lots of mistakes, throwing lots of mud against the, raw, against the wall and seeing what stuck. Now, through that trial and error period and all of this experience that you've gotten over the years, can you share some of the major learning curves that you were privy to in this process? What was it that helped you to yeah. bring about so much more production than would naturally occur in that size of a pond that you have on your land, for example? Well, unfortunately, you're not, you know, you and your audience are going to be a little bit appalled at what I'm going to say. But there's a def there's a saying in the aquaculture industry that you can't call yourself a fish farmer and kill till you've killed a million fish. And Unfortunately, aquaculture, unlike agriculture, and I'm sitting also looking out at a bunch of our grazing animals, um, our alpacas and goats right now looking at alpacas. If they get sick or if they're going to have something that's going to negatively affect them, you're going to see it. You can, you can look at them and see their health. You can see if their, their eyes are cloudy or, 
or they're they're just not uh, they're not acting like they normally do, or maybe even longer term, you see them get skinny, or you see just something about them. Their um, their fleece isn't isn't looking as healthy as it normally does. Their fleece gets wool that alpacas mm. have. You can't see that aquatic organisms. Uh, aquatic organisms don't want to be seen. They're much more comfortable in water or in circumstances where they're hiding. You can't tell their health. And the things that will affect them will affect them very quickly and will potentially kill them quickly, like low oxygen levels or too high of temperature or too low of temperature or chemical pollutants that would come into their environments. You won't see them get sick. They're just going to die. And you've got to learn what those parameters are that are going to hurt them. You've got to make sure you don't allow their living system to become polluted with them. And, and then you do kind of learn to, to watch a population in total and not individual elements of it, which you would with, with agriculture, where you can look at an individual alpaca and see if it's sick. Whoa, maybe others are sick too. But in the fish population, you have to look at the whole population. And you only get glimpses of it. So you got to be able to observe quickly. So I learned that. I learned that really early on. I learned that by scuba diving. I learned that by living with fish. I spent a lot of time in the water myself and learning what how they behaved and what they might look at when I get a tenth of a second view of them um, when they're in the water. So, again, sort of a trial and error process that you just learn through time through time. I mean, I am, you know, I'm a hundred times better aquaculturist today than I was when I was 25 years old. And I thought I knew everything. Yeah. It's funny how that learning curve often goes when you get started, you have a lot of confidence, but as you get deeper into it, this has been the learning curve for me for many things, everything from language learning to farming and building buildings. Um, your confidence actually goes down as you become more experienced and knowledgeable. Yeah. Again, so the key is I killed a lot of animals. <laughs> and I didn't do that intentionally and I didn't feel good about it while it was happening. But you learn a lot from the negative. So. Absolutely. So let's take a step back and get an idea of the major components in an aquaponic system. You mentioned your big pond, but I'm sure that's cycling the nutrients and the water to other elements in the system. Could you give us an overview of the main components of an aquaculture system? Well, the the best aquaponic system is one that completely simulates a natural system. So I've got very discrete aquaponic systems also within about 30 yards of where I'm sitting that are in, um, in an open area that's not a natural pond. And there are two different kinds of systems. One of them is called a raft system where the plants grow in converted Dixie cups that have some pea gravel in them or river rock in them that serves as a foundation for their roots. That would be similar to what sediment in a pond would do for cattails that were growing, or most people would know and have seen that. Sure. I'm simulating those cattails with, in this case, basil and lettuce and a variety of other things that are growing in these Dixie cups and the media, similar to the sediment, is these little pieces of river rock. That's one side. So now there's water in the system. And the water is similar to the water there'd be in the pond. The pond's got water. This water has been treated by microbes. And those microbes, and they can be bacteria, and they can be fungus, they can be viral, because not all viruses are bad, by the way. Um, they could be um, anything that's, again, you don't see it with the naked eye. And that those microbes are growing all over the system, but we enhance their growth on a media. And in this case, the media is landscape fabric that is wadded up inside of a 55-gallon barrel. And the water that comes to the plants goes over that that mesh of material, and it's treated by all of the microbial actions that are occurring there. And mainly, 
the nutrients that come from the last piece of the system I'll describe in a second, which is the fish, those nutrients, which is coming out of their rear ends as poop and pee, and let's just use nitrogen example, nitrogen comes out as ammonia. That ammonia has to go through a microbiological um, process that converts it to nitrites. Those nitrites actually can be harmful to plants. So you don't want them to stay as nitrites very long. And that's in a, in a balanced system. The nitrites are literally there instantaneously, literally for seconds. And they're converted to nitrates by the microbes. The nitrates are what the plants can use to grow. That's the form of nitrogen they want. That all occurs as water flows over this mesh literally in seconds. The residence time for the water in this particular system while it's in that mesh is it's less than 30 seconds probably. And, and yet it's, it's cycling on a regular basis. Now let's go up. So that's equivalent to what's in the water in the pond and what's growing on the sides of the plants, growing on rocks, growing on stumps, growing on anything that's in the water. So it's in the water and it's on the surfaces in the water itself. Most of it actually in that material, that surface area on the borders of the pond um, and on the bottom of the pond. Finally, you have the fish. And in this controlled system, we have, in this case, bass, and it has about 10 of them, not very many. We put them in there in the spring as what, what are young of the year fish, and by the end of the season, because these systems we shut down in the winter, um, they're edible. They're, they've grown to about a half a pound or a little larger in size. Well, they are producing this nutrient source, which is a combination of nitrogen, and phosphorus, and potassium, and other micronutrients that they poop and pee. And that's what goes into this mesh. Well, in a pond, obviously, you've got fish, you've got, you've got cat, you've got... Um, Insects, you've got um, microorganisms that I mentioned that are larger. You've got what we call zooplankton and phytoplankton, phytoplankton algae. You've got crayfish, so you've got uh, different kinds of crustaceans. You've got mollusks. Well, those grow in the aquaponic system also. I guarantee I can find multiple snails. I don't know where they came from. came from, from birds probably flying. So, by the way, we don't feed anything in these aquaponic systems either. They're not, they're in the open and insects will fly into them. Frogs will jump into them and the, they're pretty stupid frogs. The, the bass will eat the frogs. Um, and there are no other outside in, uh, inputs. So it's simulating that natural pond. And that's the basis of uh, ecologically balanced aquaculture system. Now, in order to find this homeostasis that you're looking for, because like you said, the life forms inside of the water don't like to be seen. They're hard to diagnose if something's going wrong. And usually you don't find out about it until it's too late. They've died. So what sort of diagnostic tools do you use to be able to stay on top of the health and the oxygen levels that allow this much life that normally wouldn't happen without some propellants to go on in a healthy way. Yeah. When we have a newer system, we do lots of water testing. So we're actually doing testing for temperature, pH, oxygen, nitrogens of various different types, nitrates, ammonia, uh, nitrites. We really want to be paying careful attention that we don't end up having nitrites. Um, we have phosphorus, a variety of things. By the way, with really inexpensive testing kits that you can buy online or that you can get through. In our case, we can go to a pet store and get them um, where they're using color metrics and very simple to do and inexpensive. Interestingly, though, once the system becomes stable and these particular systems, they've been running for almost 10 years and we shut them down in the winter, but we don't change anything about the system. We, we haven't done water monitoring in them other than if it's for experimental purposes in years um, because we, we know what the systems will do and how they respond. And then visually, you actually, in these artificial systems, we can't see the fish. We keep them in places where they're, you know, they can stay in that, that comfort level they like. The plants are very visible. 
because these are now terrestrial plants. So we do look for them. We look and see if they're brown and they're not colored like they should be, or their, their leaves are wilting, or if there's aphids, some kind of infestation by insects. We look at their roots. We pull out containers these, that are in these rafts and look at the roots, see if they're healthy. So we're actually observing them much like you would in an agriculture, a, a soil-based agriculture system. But we do do water testing, and that was what I would highly recommend for anybody in a new system to do. Now, you've taken care of all of your feed inputs by just creating a healthy ecosystem that can support the life inside of it. But there are certain inputs that are required in an aquaponic system like this, such as pumps and uh, obviously the equipment to get it set up for the infrastructure side. Can you talk a little bit about what's needed to get one of these started and how you've sort of worked to minimize the, the importation of energy for a more efficient system? Yeah, we use incredibly low power consumptive pumps. And that is the only we have. So this, the system I just described, which will produce about, you know, if you properly managed it throughout the growing season here in Colorado, which would be May through October, you could produce enough greens to produce the caloric needs of a family of four from this system. It uses a pump that, We'll use about a dollar's worth of energy a month, um, and and that's at eight cents a kilowatt hour cost. And we're a fairly low. That's a fairly low cost where we're at here. We have a lot. We have cheap energy really. Um, if you were in Europe, it'd be like forty cents a kilowatt hour, and so it'd be eight times that. So you'd have eight dollars a month for your energy cost. Um, that's the only moving part that's in the system that's not ecologically balanced. We use, in this case, we used um, liner that we got from disposed um, billboards <laughs> that were being thrown away. Oh, yeah, um, I use those too sometimes. They're great. A, a 40, yeah, 40 mil, and they're excellent. Um, we use carpet that we pick up in dumpster diving to protect our system from um, being punctured. This water system is dug into the ground, so we dug with shovels. Uh, we use natural rock that we have here to form the sides of it. Um, after we dug the hole and we use that up above, we, we secured the liner that I described with that. We use 55 gallon quote, they're called blue barrels. They come in all kinds of colors. Yep. Um, that used to be we could get those for free. Gosh, they've gotten up to where they'll, you know, the, the stores sell them for 40 bucks each now. It's actually really hard to get them for free. We could still find them at auctions at places for 10 bucks or five bucks, but we were fortunate. We accumulated a lot of them back when they were free. I mean, hundreds of them. Um, we cut them in half in this particular system. Um, to form our sump that the pump sits in. Actually, we didn't cut it in half. We, we cut a, a gap out of this particular one. Um, that pump sits down in the, in the sump, and we have a, a, a pipe that's a uh, ABS pipe that goes up to the fish tank. The fish tank is actually a baker's tank that we got from an auction for little to nothing um, because it was a waste that somebody had. I live by the theory of one man's trash being another man's treasure. Amen. And I'm the guy who takes the treasures more often than not. Um, and in this particular case, um, we have two more 55-gallon barrels that are the tops cut off of them. For that mesh that I mentioned that we've got crammed in that is really, um, you know, it's, that's really the gel for the whole system. Um, so if you look at costs in U.S. dollars, anybody could put this system together for less than $50 probably if they could find those blue barrels inexpensively, maybe $100 if they had to buy the blue barrels. Um, and it's been running for 10 years. It's same. I think we've maybe replaced the pump once. That pump is about a $20 pump that you could buy on Amazon. Um, and we usually buy new pumps, but sometimes we get refurbished ones or people are giving them away on Craigslist and other things. Um, it's about a 
little bit bigger than a 20 gallon aquarium pump. It's not that large. Um, we've got some bigger systems that we use bigger pumps on, obviously. Right adjacent to the one I've been describing, we have a, a aquaponics system that uses media, and it's in 16 um, 55-gallon drums that we cut in half that we put river rock in, and the, the plants grow right down into the river rock, which provides both the biological treatment part of the system and the foundation for the plants. And then the fish are living in a big stock tank that we converted. It's a 300-gallon farm stock tank. Um, the pump is in there, and the fish live in there, and then they just pump up through pipes up to the fish. We collect all the water as it leaves the media portion of the system into drain pipes. This particular system has lots of more pipes, and then it goes back into the tank with the fish. Um, it's a simpler system than a raft system. Um, but And those are two of the three primary types of aquaponic systems. The third type is called a nutrient film system, where instead of your roots being in water all the time, they're only inundated with water for part of the time, and you run water through tubes to them. Otherwise, all the other pieces of the system are the same. We actually put those kinds of systems out on top of our ponds, much like the Chinese do and the, and the Mayans did back 5,000 years ago in Mexico um, with, uh, to grow plants, to grow terrestrial plants. I'm glad to hear you've got some animals. Also. I'm actually recording this at a buddy's house. Normally, we don't have dogs. We have goats and chickens making noise. Um, <laughs> so a little bit. We're just down the hill from our farm at the moment. Um, so give me an idea of some of the other harvests that you get off of this. Aside from the fish that you mentioned, what are the main things that you're producing as far as plant life? You can grow a whole wide variety of fruiting and or leafy plants. It's, it's a little bit difficult to grow rooted plants in water-based systems because the roots are used to having the resistance soil um, to form. The roots will form. So like a terrip, but it'll be rather difficult. A turnip will form. It won't get large enough. really don't have a, a turnip. So... In the two systems I just described, I would bet over the last um, 100 different types greens, grasses, name the different kinds of herbs, basil to chickpeas, to, to name it, tomatoes, um, squashes, peppers. Uh, we usually try to avoid really large. Fruiting plants like watermelons or, or cantaloupes, let's say, because they don't fit real well into a system. They, they want to grow out of these containers that we grow things in. Um, we've grown perennial plants. So you could grow um, trees, Dixie cups, diameters up to an inch, let's say, um, and grow a plant that might for you multiple years in a row. Um, so the plant side of it is can be very diverse. Um, and you don't have to have fish either. You could grow a whole bunch of crayfish rather than the fish. Um, the problem with crayfish is they tend to eat each other. So you got to be careful with how many you put in a system. But <laughs> So it's a little bit counterintuitive to most of us still, especially who are used to more conventional farming, that the root systems from these plants can survive underwater for so long if they're not you know, normally adapted to do so. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of hangups within the system for having the root inundated. And is it just because there's enough oxygen in the water that the roots don't have trouble? Um, that's a great question. I get asked it all the time. Um, I'm not going to answer it as well as a botanist would. Um, I'm an animal guy for the most part, but I've obviously been around plants for a lot of years. But I don't know that, that there is a good explanation. Nobody's ever given one. Why would a, a terrestrial plant, you know, any of them, corn, lettuce, tomatoes, that, you know, evolve to grow in soil, why would it do really well, actually thrive with its roots growing in water? But they do. And I think it does have to do with 
Um, the fact that there's a there is a really good level and and it is a consistent level of what of conditions environmental conditions that that plant really likes and so it's oxygen it's nutrients it's ph it's all the different chemical parameters that are that are affecting those roots the plants the plants thrive on and and remember, their stems and their leaves, those are all in the air. They're in terrestrial air, just like they'd be if the roots were in soil. And I think because of that, the plant's still getting so much from its, you know, its air-impacted surfaces that it sort of balances out if there's some negatives coming from the water. Another question people ask is, what about root rot? You do not get root rot. Never seen it in an aquaponics system. Um, and the explanation I've gotten from, from, again, botanists for that is root rot occurs when roots are wet and dry. So they're in cycles. They go from being very wet to being dry, to being wet to being dry. In this case, your roots are wet all the time. That's the only time that I've seen plants suffer in aquaponics systems is when their roots dry out. If for whatever reason you allow the roots to get dry, they'll really start to struggle. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense on a certain level, but it's still counterintuitive. And I think that's one of the most interesting and exciting things about the potential of aquaponics is that it's still kind of in its infancy stages, at least the way that we're producing with them now. And there's a ton of room for innovation and fine tuning of these systems. I can see you've already done that within your own. What are some of the areas that you would like to see more research and advancement done in the field of aquaponics? Well, it's it's using more um, ecologically balanced systems, like I was describing our ponds. And secondly, too many people believe that you can produce commercial quantities of plants in an aquaponic system only using the nutrients derived from fish. That's a fallacy. Fish do not produce enough potassium, for example. They don't produce enough phosphorus. They'll produce plenty of nitrogen. Get all the nitrogen you need. You'll have all the carbon you need, but not enough of some of the other nutrients. So you've got to you've got to treat it like a hydroponic system. Somehow you've got to add phosphorus to the system, or you've got to add other nutrients. And so I like I'd like to see us start to really focus on what are called decoupled systems, to where at certain times the fish or the aquatic can grow without plants and the plants can grow without the fish. And then there's times when they grow together. And you do that by the way you move your water around the system. That's number one. Number two, and this is what I'd rather see more of. In the United States alone, we have over a million ponds that are an acre or more in size that are not used for anything productive from an agriculture. We could be growing floating islands of plants, lettuce, basil, that aren't going to get preyed on by deer and other things in those ponds and be eating them. And we could produce enough to, to serve the American public in those ponds that are not being used for any purposes. So start thinking more about natural aquaponics and less about these really sophisticated systems. And then finally, where you're at, you can use aquaponics or I'm just going to call it um, hybridized aquaculture, growing plants and animals together in very low income, very low water. You know, you, you're in an area that you get a lot of rainfall, but take the take the areas along the midsection of the world in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, or in, in other parts of Asia, or in, in Australia, or in South America, where there isn't much water. And you, you literally could be growing 
the same kinds of plants and possibly animals that you grow in much more water-rich areas and by cycling that water and using it in, a, in something like a natural aquaculture, aquaponic type system. Again, I, I hate to use that word aquaponics at times, but those are things, all those three things I'd like to see people research on. See, that was something that really struck me when I first started researching aquaponics is that it actually uses less water than conventional agriculture because so much of it is cycled. It seems like it's a very consumptive as far as water goes uh, system, but because the water is constantly being recycled through the system, it's less consumptive than irrigating the land, for example. Oh, it's probably 90% more more efficient that way. We talk about you know, if uh, growing something in a terrestrial system requires 10 gallons of water, it's going to require only about a gallon of water uh, to grow that same amount of, of a plant, for example, in a, in a natch, in a, in a aquaponics, in a hybridized aquaculture system involving plants. Yeah, that's remarkable. Now, let's switch gears here a little bit before we wrap up the interview. You've got an amazing educational outlet uh, known as the Economic Action Team, or EAT for short. Could you give us a little overview for my listeners who haven't explored that resource yet and just the breadth of knowledge and, um, and resources that you've helped to bring together on this online platform? Well, thank you for the ability to do that because I'd love to get the word out about what we're doing to more people because you can take advantage of it for free. Um, we also have some paid pins, but but it's mainly for free. Uh, honestly, what its genesis, what it came from, was uh, my interest in education, which I've been interested in my whole life. I've re- even though I stopped being a full time college professor about 30 years ago, I have continued to be a professor. I still have professorships at universities. I teach graduate students and others, and I love doing online education since it's developed about 10 years ago. And I found that in the, let's call it broadly, the green space, that you could go listen to individual webinars, and there were great ones out there. You could get teaching all over by just searching around. But there weren't courses. You couldn't take a whole year, for example, on a topic and learn about it. Well, I thought, what if we could get experts, the world's best in certain topics, to teach about that topic um, over the internet. And if we we could make that available, and if we could make it available live and as a replay, that would be wonderful. So we started that a little more than two years ago with one course. I was teaching a backyard aquaculture course and soon thereafter Mark Shepard started teaching a forest ecology course that forest ecology course lasted for a year <laughs> and um, Mark taught his guts out and, and he was unique information um, everything I did for that first backyard aquaculture course was also unique you couldn't find it anywhere else on the internet and we just taught using our own styles and everybody teaches differently. Mark is really organized. I'm typically somewhat or unorganized. And I like to use lots of resources from the internet. And I'll, I'll Google things and show them to people as I'm teaching about a topic. And so we started with those first two. Um, now we're, uh, you know, two, a little more than two years later. And we have, this week we'll have 10 different courses being taught. And they'll be on everything from solar energy in an ecological manner that you can use in your, you know, your home or your business to um, chicken culture and how you can do natural um, forest raised or pasture raised chickens to uh, courses on health and how do you improve your hormonal health or um, how do you improve your um, your your behaviors uh, to businesses. How do you how do you keep a balance sheet? How do you do the books for a farming business? All of them have to do with the really simple 
definition of economics, which is teaching people to make people on the planet better and to make a little bit of money doing it. Not a lot, to make something appropriate. So our goal is to be 24 hours a day. And we're up to some weeks, we have as many as 15 hours. This week will probably be 12, 13 hours. Um, other weeks, you know, we're, we're a little less, well, really not ever less than that. And our goal is to be 24 hours a day. Who knows if we'll ever reach that, but we're gonna keep growing it. We're always looking for new instructors who wanna teach. So the benefits to them are that we share all the recorded information with them and they can use it for other purposes themselves. They can create courses, they can do other things with it. So if anybody that's listening to this happens to know somebody they'd love to learn from, refer them to us, go talk to them. We're not scared of talking to anybody. I'll go ask you know, Nobel Prize winners to come teach for us, if it makes sense. So, um, but we only want to have people teach that are experts in what they're doing. We have, a, we have a saying is that we won't let somebody teach who just learned about it in a classroom. We want to have people teach that have done what they're teaching about. Um, we've had about 100 different speakers. And sometimes people just, and other people will teach the courses. And, um, and, and again, it's free. And we, um, we, we also, we have about 20,000 people in our community. So it's not growing as fast as we'd like, but it's growing fine. And, and we also want to eventually create live places that people all around the world. So maybe Oliver would be teaching a, a course on, on natural building in Guatemala. And people from all over South America would come there because they learned about Imanit. That, that's the goal. Fantastic. Well, I can attest that I have personally gotten a ton of value from these platforms. I've really liked uh, Mark Shepard's webinar series, like you mentioned. Um, William Horvath's series that he did uh, last season was phenomenal. Uh, I learned a ton from yours as well. And I would really encourage anybody who's listening now to check out that platform. Like he said, all of the resources are free. There are memberships that you can buy as well. But there's so much that you can get um, just by plugging into the webinar series as they come out. Um, so before I let you go, Wayne, is there any other way that um, our listeners can get in touch with you, contact your organizations, or just learn more? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I am probably most responsive to email. And my email is really simple, Wayne Dorband. And I'm sure as, as Oliver puts this up, my name will be there. So it's first and last name at gmail.com. I have some other ones too, but they all will, I, I, that one will get you to me. Um, so email me, I will absolutely get back to you. Um, or join the EAT community. So it's more than just our webinars. There's other stuff in there. Um, and it's really that simple, www.eatcommunity.com. And when you go there, if you are not a member, it'll just ask you for your email address and name. It'll send you login instructions, give you, you know, ask you to create a password, and then you're there. You can go to it whenever you'd like. Um, and you can then make comments and there you can make, you know, can ask for info. And there's my email address is plastered all over that. You know, if you're in the States, you can text or call also. We're really visible on the internet and I'm very transparent. I'm not really afraid of people kind of knowing our office phone number or others. I probably won't give those right now because hopefully this is going all over the world and people probably aren't going to call the U.S. But I've got Skype and other things and you'll get the knowledge about that. So probably either the email or go to the e community and join. And I'll be sure to put links to those as well on the show notes for this episode on the website as well. So. Wayne, thank you so much for your generosity of time and knowledge today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and I've had so much fun and learned so much from all of these resources that you've been putting online. So I want to thank you for those as well. Well, and Oliver, thank you. You're doing a really special thing for the world too. And guess what? All of you can do something. Just do a little if you can, anything. Don't ever feel bad by thinking, wow, I just can't do enough. Just make a little change. Pick up trash. I could tell all kinds of stories and we've had speakers about how they've turned picking up trash into businesses and so on or, or 
you know, make sure that you don't, you don't, you don't create refuse, you know, recycle as much as possible, do anything, do little things. But man, what Oliver is doing also is incredible. So thank you. And let's stay in touch. As Chris said a little bit earlier, as we started, my partner here, I'd like to figure out how you come on and be a guest with us, Oliver, and maybe teach a course on what you're doing with natural building. Hey, let's make it happen. Yeah, I'd love to do that. All right. Well, we'll certainly keep in touch and I'm sure we can do a follow up sometime in a later season. So again, thank you, Wayne. And I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Oliver. Bye bye, man. Bye bye, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.